From the CQ Roll Call Newsroom in Washington, this is the Big Story Podcast, your nonpartisan news source for how Congress and the federal government shape the real world. I'm Jason Dick, the leadership editor at CQ Roll Call, and I'm joined by two fabulous guests, Bridget Bowman, our senior political reporter, and John Allen, one of our columnists and the author of the definitive uh, book on the 2016 campaign, and particularly Hillary Clinton, uh, Shattered. John, Bridget, welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. So one of the things, we have this crazy week in Washington right now. The Senate is is uh, voting on their health care proposals. We, we are sort of sussing out minute by minute what exactly they might be voting on. Uh, we have the president who is uh, seems to be going after his attorney general, and and now he's saying that he doesn't want transgender people to be in the military. However, one thing that has it's only when is Wednesday when we're doing this taping, but we've already sort of like gone past some of the biggest news that started on Monday. It seems like you know eons ago now, and that's the rollout of the congressional Democrats' political agenda, a better deal. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the rollout of this, where it happened, how it got developed, and also what some of the effects are. Uh, Bridget, let's start with you. Uh, let, what what happened on Monday and where did it happen with a better deal? Sure. So on Monday, a number of the Democratic leaders from the House and Senate went to Berryville, Virginia, which is in northern Virginia, uh, to unveil this new platform, better deal, better jobs, better wages, better future. And for them, this is an economic agenda that they can run on. So after the 2016 election, you heard a lot of Democrats saying, okay, we, you know, we're looking to 2018, but we need something to be for, not just to be against President Trump. So this is sort of the start of that. I've been talking to a couple people about the timing of this, and they really said they wanted to unveil this before the August recess so members can take it home to their districts. Now, a, a little bit about Berryville, Virginia. We say Northern Virginia. It is technically Northern Virginia. It's it's about an, an hour, depending on traffic, maybe an hour <laughs> and a half outside of the Beltway. Uh, this is not, though, uh, blue Virginia. This is not Arlington or Alexandria. I mean, this is like in the in sort of the exurbs. It's represented by a Republican, Barbara Comstock, in, in, in Congress, which is a seat that the Democrats are targeting. Uh, John, we were talking a little bit before we, we started this about, about a little anecdote. Tell us about that, about Berryville. Oh, my father was telling me that he has a friend who lives in Berryville, Virginia, who only found out about the Democrats rolling out their message and having an event there, like, as it was happening or maybe even after it happened. And my, my father's re- response was a pretty, a pretty obvious one, which was, how are the Democrats going to win elections if they can't communicate to people who live in the town where they're doing an event that they're doing the event? One of the things that struck me was that the they rolled this out on Monday we got some notice, some advance notice of it. We had reporters uh, out there. We had a, our photographer out there. Uh, the Democrats got a little bit of press, but it was just overshadowed by the week that w- was to come. They knew that they were going to be voting on health care or there would be a big vote on health care. Bridget, you said that there was the recess, but did, did it occur to them that maybe they could reschedule or maybe they could keep, keep the focus on health care, which seems like the issue that they are are now pivoted towards. So like, people haven't been talking about a better deal in the mm-hmm. last few days. Well, one aide mentioned just the logistics of of coordinating all these different members' schedules was part of one of the factors. And a couple of the aides I talked to were happy with the press coverage that they got on Monday. There was cable news was showing it live. Um, They got a number, our outlet covered it, a number of outlets covered it. But I think for them, with this administration, any certain day can bring a new news cycle. So they wanted to get their message out there when it worked and just before August. John, 
you know, having covered the Clinton campaign and having covered Hillary Clinton for a number of years, even before the campaign formally started, uh, you and your your partner in crime, as you call her, Amy Parnes, it seems like Hillary Clinton did not lack for an economic plan when she was running for president, but it, it tended to get a little overshadowed. Are we seeing, you know, maybe that there, that there's a risk of that, that the Democrats have this plan, but it's going to be just overshadowed by, I don't know, Russian meddling or, you know, take your pick? Well, I think uh, importantly in the places where Hillary Clinton lost, the Democrats typically win, namely uh, in the Rust Belt in Michigan and Wisconsin and other places. She had an economic plan. She had an economic message. She, Her campaign made them clear even when she wasn't there in some of those states uh, or at least talked about it to some degree. And it wasn't popular in those states. I mean, part of the problem for her was that she was pushing something uh, that was not what Donald Trump was selling. And what Donald Trump was selling was a lot more popular with, uh, in particular with working class white voters. So he was talking about building a wall, sending illegal immigrants home. He was talking about cutting, tr- cutting back on trade deals, pulling back from international agreements. All of these things hit, pr- hit home pretty well for like populist working class whites. And her messages were much more nuanced than that. In fact, in the book we talk about in the Michigan primary, where she's running against Bernie Sanders, and Bernie Sanders is wholly against trade. Uh, It would be hard to find somebody who had a stronger anti-trade message, except for possibly Donald Trump. And she goes into Michigan a few days before the election and unveils a new economic plan. And the idea is, here are all these different points where we're going to convert the economy into something that works for people who have uh, old line industrial jobs. And in the process of that, she talks about trade. And she says, I'm against the the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was this big trade deal that Trump was against that Bernie Sanders was against that she helped negotiate as Secretary of State, and she comes in and says, well, I'm against TPP now. Here are the conditions under which I could support a deal like TPP. Well, if you're a voter and you're against that trade deal, you don't want her to get to the place where she can support it. Uh, and I think a lot of times her message was really muddled by uh, by some of the nuance and by the fact that it didn't really match up with peop- what people there wanted. It was it, She didn't sound like she was offering something for them. You know, and I think that was a broader problem with their messaging. And I think it's a broader problem for the Democrats' messaging with this latest better deal, which is some sort of amalgamation of uh, Papa John's and Franklin Roosevelt. <laughs> you know, Papa John's with the better, oh, and, and you've got the, better pizza. You've got the deal, right? Like, you know, Trump talks about the deal a lot. And then it also, you know, using better is sort of taking from what the Republicans had, what, they had, what their better way. New I deal, mean, fair it, deal, it, square fair deal. deal. <laughs> I mean, deal is something that has been used a lot. And but and particularly by Democratic candidates in the past. I, I think that they would, I know that they rolled out some policies with this, but they really fronted the slogan on it. And I'm not sure that that was a good idea to front the slogan. I think it's a better idea to, and also I think their slogan stinks. I mean, just broadly kind of stinks. I don't think it's a particularly inspiring one. It's not really shorthand for what they plan to do. And a good slogan uh, reinforces some larger idea that you have that's a big good idea. I think ad campaigns are successful when they have both have a good underlying sense of what the product is and, and the slogan. But also, I'm not entirely sure that in a midterm election you really need to have a lot behind that positive messaging. In a presidential election, you need to contrast negative and you need to have a positive messaging. Hillary Clinton tried to disqualify Donald Trump and was successful to the point that a fifth of his voters said that uh, he was unqualified to be president, and yet she didn't qualify herself with a lot of those people. But in a midterm election, you can do a whole lot of negative and very little positive and still win. We saw that in 2000, 
uh, six with the Democrats. They had a slogan, six for six. They had a little plan. It got rolled out sort of late in the cycle. But really, it was sort of anti what was going on with the Iraq war and with President Bush at the time. In 2010, you saw Republicans retake the House, very anti-Obama and particularly anti-Nancy Pelosi with a little bit of the pledge, which I don't think most voters could have like named a single item in there. So, A, I don't think it's that important to have the positive. you got to have something that you point to. I think the Democrats will have that. This is decent enough for them, but it's not like the be-all and end-all. So, so, Bridget, one of the things that you reported was that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the you know Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, uh, and and the leadership worked with Bernie Sanders people. Uh, mm-hmm. They worked with Emily's List. They worked with a, a bunch of different cross cross groups to make sure that they they tried to appeal to the the Democratic base and that they were getting that. I mean, in, in your follow ups as, as as you've been like looking at how's this rollout, what's been the reaction from the base, which they would obviously need to turn out in a midterm election. Midterm elections, as John said, they're they're much more about like your own, you know, your your base voters. You mm-hmm. can, can you get them out? I mean it's less this aspirational presidential message. Are, is it working for them or have you seen any any evidence of that? So it was interesting to see some of the responses from the progressive group. I think it was the progressive change committee. I think they said they called it a slap in the face to blue dog Democrats. Like they were taking this as a big win for the progressive part of the party, particularly the antitrust, anti big corporation mergers. Part of it, I think, was key to that. And that was something that was interesting that the DCCC did in talking, like you said, to the Sanders folks. And they have this broader problem and broader challenge of trying to merge these two wings of the party. So they wanted to create something that also could be tailored to different areas. And so members could sort of pick and choose what what aspects of the platform work for them. So I think it'll be interesting to see how some of the more red state, red district Democrats will sort of take different pieces of this message, too. Right. And, and we should uh, say that the blue dog Democrats, uh, almost an extinct species for for a little while now, are, are conservative Democrats right. or, or Democrats mm-hmm. from conservative places, from from places that voted for, for Trump or for Bush you know, b- before him. These used to be kind of like the, the bedrock of, of the Democratic success, at least in 2006, the 2006 election, as you, as you mentioned, John, you know, there were, I think there were 52 or 53 blue dogs and they won in places like Ohio and Georgia and, and places that Trump sort of cleaned up. And if, if we're already seeing this internecine, <laughs> like we, we won, you know, in the better deal sweepstakes, I guess, is that bode well? Does it matter going into the to midterm election, like you said, John, or, or could this depress some of the turnout? I don't think most people are going to be paying attention to what the Democrats slogan is. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's bad. It could be a lot better, so to speak, given that they do look better <laughs> all the time. But I don't, I don't think they're going to win or lose based on their national slogan. I think they're going to win or lose based on whether they have candidates that can appeal to both sides of the Democratic spectrum, so both appeal to the base and to to the sort of moderate side of the Democratic Party, and then also reach out toward Republicans. I mean, this is all pretty simple, right? Like, you want to win an election, you start with the candidates. you got to have candidates that have broad appeal and can inspire people to come out and vote. And you need to have a platform that is a, in contrast to the other side and offer something that people want. And I think, you know, one of the nice things about congressional elections is you can have your candidates promise things that are different than what the national party is promising at that that sort of other level. And sometimes will contrast themselves against uh, their own party. Right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, having that one of the benefits to having that out there is sort of a national. Here's our platform. It does give Democrats something that they can triangulate uh, against. So they'll 
distance themselves from Trump, and they will also distance themselves from what the National Democratic Party is doing and say, look, you know, Democrats are going to pick up seats, Democrats are going to be more influential, uh, I'm going to try to stop them from doing this, I'm going to try to stop Trump from doing that, and I'm going to try to get this done. And sort of on top of that, one of the interesting things about the Monday rollout is that you didn't see any of the red state Senate Democrats there. I mean, it was you didn't even see Tim Kaine, who's up who's, for re-election in 2018 in right. Virginia. I mean, on, part on of that, that stage. is because this agenda was written by the the caucus leadership. So the people that were there were the people in charge, like the vice chairs of the conference, the steering and policy committee people. But it was just interesting. So I I kind of thought that was interesting in terms of where are these red state Democrats going to run away from this platform and, mm-hmm. and go in a different direction. No. We were up on the Hill um, earlier this week, Bridget, and, and saw this, you know, this packed house as the Senate began debate on, on health care. The, the Democrats seemed to be pretty unified. They didn't vote on this motion to proceed, this procedural motion to get to the health care bill until all the Republicans had voted. Mm-hmm. And then they made a point of standing up and, and voicing their, you know, their no vote. And it was this sort of display of of unity that is is typically uh, in in short supply mm-hmm. am- among Democrats, <laughs> are we going to see? Do you think more of that? Like as in these these sort of displays? Because as the minority party, they don't have a lot to to go on. They can't do very much in terms of proposing legislation. They've got. They just have things like this. I think that will depend on the issue. I think on healthcare, that's definitely been interesting to watch them be so united. And it, it was inter- the vote that you mentioned where Democrats just sat while Republicans voted just seemed very much like Republicans, you will own this. We are going to sit and you are going to own this, what they say is a disaster of a plan. So I think it will definitely depend on, on the issue on health care, though. Democrats seem very united against any of these Republicans' plans. A plan seems generous. Yeah. We're talking about the Republican health care <laughs> debacle right now. I mean, the, the idea that there voting. is a plan is generous. They, the plan Maybe we'll even like, see language at some point. <laughs> language. I mean, they're, they're, they basically were like, all right, we're going to do what you know people conceive of the Senate looking like, which is get something onto the floor and then wrestle it around a little bit. I think that what's in, to me what's interesting is the Democratic unity is a function of how disastrous this looks for the Republicans, whether they get it done or not. Mm-hmm. So the question for these Republicans is, I think, a long-term or short-term pain thing. The short-term pain is they don't get it done and they get hit by their constituents for not getting anything done. The long-term pain is that they own a replacement for Obamacare that strips tens of millions of people of their insurance and then have to deal with that for a long time. And, you know, if you're Mitch McConnell and you're the Senate Majority Leader, like, I think you'd rather, like, not win a few seats, you know, this next time, potentially, and, and but not give away a dozen seats over the course of the next four or six years right. by putting something into law that doesn't work. So they have to be careful about what they pass and what they negotiate with the House if, in fact, they get to that stage. So speaking of the conflict among the wings of the, of the Democratic Party and the Democratic Caucus, you know, the, the president tweeted and, and announced that he wants to ban transgender people from serving in the military. This is an, an issue that would seem to have a lot of support among the, the president's supporters. Are we seeing that, like, the, the Democrats are going to jump immediately? I mean, we've seen, we've seen some reaction here where Democrats have defended transgender people and, and, and their rights. But is this going to continue to be this issue that, that could potentially divide the Democratic Party? I mean, I think it's been clear for a long time that the uh, public reaction to transgender rights is less supportive than the public reaction to lesbian, gay, bisexual rights. So 
it's an area where Trump's base is probably pretty unified against transgender people in the military. Certainly, if he takes that position, it's easy for them to get there. For Democrats, I think it's a more fraught question. It's not necessarily that they think transgender people should be booted or excluded from the military, but whether or not their constituents feel like that's an issue that really ought to be fought over or something that they get really intense about, whereas a lot of Trump supporters will have intensity about it. So, I mean, I can see Democrats struggling with this issue. They have, in the past, when they've been in control of Congress, you know, split over the question of whether they were going to fight for transgender rights alongside uh, gay and lesbian rights. And yet, Bridget, we've got in Wisconsin, you know, which which unexpectedly went for Donald Trump uh, by a very narrow margin. Uh, they they elected the first openly gay senator in Tammy Baldwin. She's running for re-election in 2018. Mm-hmm. It's not as easy a question to answer about whether what, what sort of effect, right? Right, because you have Senator Baldwin in a state like Wisconsin that has liberal areas in Madison and conservative, more rural areas. And so, I mean, will this be an issue that people vote on? Maybe not, but it's definitely highlights kind of that interesting, interesting dynamic there. Well, thank you, John. Thank you, Bridget, for talking about this. This is a sort of an unfolding thing, and and it's good to just kind of talk both long long game and short game, uh, if if you will. I'm Jason Dick. Thanks for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. Thanks for listening. <laughs>